Hi, I'm David Freudberg. This podcast derives from the Humankind Public Radio series, which I began hosting back in 1997. Our program recognizes how hard it can be, but also how necessary, for us to hold on to our humanity. So we've sought out people with stories that illustrate how they approach that quest. To aim high, to treat others as we'd like to be treated, to see others as more similar to us than different, to strive for patience and personal grace even in adversity, to be part of the solution, not the problem. We hope our podcast helps to reinforce and inspire your own quest. Thank you. Providing for the home care needs of America's elders. You're listening to Humankind. I'm David Freudberg. This is an eminently preventable crisis. I'm 54 years old, and if I don't pass away sooner, I will one day be 80 and, and probably need care. I know that now. Uh, there's no reason why I should wait till I'm 80 years old or 85 to prepare for that. Why not prepare for it now? Over the past century, the average lifespan of Americans has increased by nearly 30 years. But about half of today's older adults are financially unprepared for those extra years, according to a Stanford University study. And over the next couple of decades, the number of Americans age 65 or older is projected to reach more than 80 million. Providing care for this huge population will become a pressing national need. What are you doing here? I'm looking after you. Oh, you don't say, really? Looking after me? Well, first I've heard of it. Uh, since when? Quite a few weeks now. Oh, a few weeks now? Well, happy to hear it. <laughs> Amazing. Nobody ever tells me anything in this house. Anthony Hopkins, in his Academy Award-winning role as a patient with dementia, along with his nurse played by Olivia Williams from the deeply moving film The Father. The real-life demands of elder care confront tens of millions of American families who must sort through a thicket of complicated choices and conflicting emotions. President Joe Biden, October 2021. Millions of you are in the so-called sandwich generation who feel financially squeezed by raising a child and caring for an aging parent. We're going to expand services for seniors so families can get help from well-trained, well-paid professionals to help them take care of their parents at home, to cook meals for them, to get their groceries for them, to help them get around, to help them live in their own home with the dignity they deserve to be afforded. In Dalton, Illinois, just south of Chicago, Martina Cummings has worked as a professional caregiver. In addition to the safety concerns, in addition to the hygiene concerns, you also have to be mindful of respecting the person in their home, your guest in their home. The majority of my uh, cases were uh, live-in cases. And so, you know, we had to learn all of those things. I learned a lot of it, too, through, um, you know, before I even started working with the agency when I was working with my mom. I'm the youngest of nine. 
And, um, you know, we learned a lot of those household rules uh, early on. Wearing an attractive black head wrap, Martina is seated next to her friend and caregiving colleague, Jesse Dunbar. Direct care is often arduous labor, serving people who are sick or living with disabilities. But for the workers, it can also be hard to make ends meet on the hourly wages they are paid. They started me off with $15, but I actually got my raise a couple of months ago. So now I'm at 18 now. And for you, is that a livable wage? No. An estimated 4.6 million direct caregivers assist America's older adults. They perform their duties in private homes, nursing facilities, and residential care settings. Their ranks are projected to increase by millions in coming years. Currently, almost 9 in 10 are women, mostly people of color and immigrants. And says PHI, which tracks this workforce, they are consistently marginalized. In fact, many of these employees rely on some form of government safety net. They may work with a company part-time and getting some other type of uh, public assistance. Also, the, the food SNAP benefits, they will use uh, the food SNAP benefits to supplement uh, their income. Um, also, um, Section 8 housing to supplement their income. I even know, um, especially for the live-ins, um, they would um, stay in their car and take showers in trucks um, on the days that they were off because they were living at the client's house for four or five days a week. And so the other two days, they would either do it at a truck stop or they would go to a hotel for those couple days. Um, so that's not, that's not uncommon. You're saying that folks in that condition are essentially what many would refer to as homeless. Correct. Right. Correct. That's not unusual. And for Martina Cummings, wages paid are not the only way these workers are undervalued. Before I got into caregiving, I was working, you know, I was in underwriting and mortgages and things like that. So the first thing that came to people's minds when they found out that I was doing caregiving was that's a step down. You shouldn't be doing that work. That work is not meaningful. People didn't um, think of it as being meaningful work. So a lot of my peers would look down on me, and even people who knew me from before would look down on me, um, uh, and they would call it uh, a, a glorified babysitter. Why do people have that misunderstanding, do you think? Well, unfortunately, in my experience in America, as the elderly people in general are not, they're looked upon as being dispensable. They're not looked upon as having value per se, uh, like I see in other countries that I go to. And so, um, you know, people don't have the respect of the elders and they feel that elders have lost their usefulness, you know. And so, um, you know, people just have, I, I think it's more of a miseducation than anything else. Right. Going into it, you think you know what's best for 
the patient because you are the quote unquote expert. You think you know, right. you know what they what they need, what's best for them, and what you find out is that the patient knows what's best for them. And you are there to facilitate that process to get them through wherever, whichever route they want to take. I've had some clients who were on hospice who did not want, you know, morphine and lorazepam and things like that. And family members were like, okay, well, she, she's in pain. She needs this. We have to do this. Mm-hmm. And my client said no. And so that's what it was. But we have to take into consideration that the patient is the driver, you know. Um, you know, they are the pilot, you know. They are the, 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 the masters of their fate, you know, so to mm-hmm. speak. And so we have to allow that process to take place, take ourselves out of it, because that is their, that is their life. Because your role is to serve their needs, particularly at a moment when they're especially vulnerable? That's right. Yes, we're there to serve. And to me, the service is like the greatest thing you can do on this earth. Mm-hmm. Somebody said that's the price you pay for being on this earth is service. So service is important. Martina's service to older adults began when her mother got sick and could no longer live alone. As her mom's condition improved, Martina began exploring caregiving as a profession and she joined an agency. Shortly afterward, most of her work transitioned to hospice care for people at the end of life. Since I started caregiving, this has been the greatest education, the human spirit, and working with people, and understanding people, and understanding how we all are connected with one another. another. And that education that you get um, from just interacting with people and getting to know people. So what what have you observed about the human spirit in doing this work? The potential is like unlimited. I have been in situations where people were supposed to have died, have not made it home from the hospital and have lived for almost a year after that. You know, the mind is or just more. so yeah. <laughs> or more. Yes, or more. The mind is just so powerful, you know. And you learn all of these things, and you witness miracles. I have seen miracles with my own eyes. So it's different from, you know, working in an office and, you know, you shifting papers and things like that. Not to, because that was hard work in itself, too. But when you're dealing with a human being, a real person, a living person, that's serious work. And unfortunately, the way the system is set up, many times the harder you work doesn't, doesn't dictate your compensation. Many of the people who work the hardest in America are paid the least amount. It's also sometimes true that direct care workers are on the receiving end of verbal and even physical abuse from people they're taking care of. These patients, some of whom are living with dementia, may be under considerable strain themselves. We're exploring elder care, how 
we respond to the needs of America's surging population of older adults. You're listening to Humankind. I'm David Freudberg. For more information on this segment, part of our project Aging in Community, and to obtain audio downloads or CDs, please visit humanmedia.org. In 2020, when the COVID pandemic arrived with sudden and fierce intensity, it placed an unprecedented strain on America's underfunded system of long-term care. No one was at greater risk than older adults, who even in more normal times account for most medical spending. Direct care workers serve on the front lines. Harvard Medical School's David Grabowski. We really undervalue paid caregivers in this country, we pay them way too little. So uh, many of them make basically at or near minimum wage for, for work that's really challenging. Uh, we're, we're talking about, you know, you're, you're going to somebody's home, you're spending, uh, you know, a full day with someone who may have, you know, cognitive impairment, who may have lots of physical needs. Uh, it, it's not uncommon to have, you know, individuals try caregiving for uh, you know, a matter of time and say, you know, I, I, I could do a lot better if I go work for Amazon or I go work at the grocery store or a fast food restaurant. Uh, I can make pretty much the same pay for a job that's much less stressful. Direct care workers may be called on to lend a hand with what are known as the activities of daily living. These include bathing, dressing, eating, toilet care, mobility challenges, and helping older adults transfer to and from bed. They also sometimes assist with meal prep, housekeeping, and managing medications. But on top of that... There's a lot of stories of uh, a, a lot of caregivers not being treated very well by family members and uh, you know, others where they're, they're not appreciated or valued in a, for, for, for the work that they're, they're doing. Are there networks we can put together? Are there ways in which they can, they can kind of talk to other uh, caregivers? And then on top of that, are there kind of ladder programs where if, if they do want to get credits towards a, a, an LPN degree or something else, are there ways that we can facilitate that uh, such that we're actually investing in this, in this workforce? Because otherwise, it, it feels very exploitive to me. And arranging care for an older loved one can be complex and emotionally fraught. That was the case for Ben Vegti, himself an expert in elder care now living in Seattle. His mother had developed Parkinson's disease. Seventy percent of us are going to need long-term care at some point uh, as we age. Um, it's extremely challenging. I can tell you from my own experience that one of my main concerns was that I knew it was going to be a difficult journey both for my mom and myself and my family members, but knowing that she was safe and not injuring herself, um, you know, every once in a while she would have a fall in the tub or walking around her apartment with her walker. She'd break a hip or something or break a bone. And it was catastrophic each time that that happened. And typically when someone ends up going to the emergency room, somebody who has dementia of some kind, as is entailed with Parkinson's as well, when they would, when you come back from the emergency room, you go to rehab before you come home. And that often sets, really advances the acceleration of the dementia because they become disoriented. But how do families pay for long-term elder care? Ben was appointed as director of the WACARES Fund in Washington State. 
It's a first-in-the-nation program that operates similar to Social Security. Effective January 2022, employees are required to pay into the fund 58 cents for every $100 of salary they earn. Then, three years later, all who qualify will be eligible for up to $36,500 in elder care support. To cover costs like direct care workers or home-delivered meals or accessibility ramps. Over the long term, what you need is a structural solution so that year after year after year, 10 years from now, 20 years from now, 30 years from now, there's a system in place. And that's what uh, the Walk Cares Fund does in Washington State. And I hope we do that at the federal level at some point because we all need to know that as we age, that care will be available for us and that we won't have to try to pay out of pocket when we're 85 and, and maybe don't have a lot of life savings. Half of Americans don't have any retirement savings. Uh, and the ones who do, most of them don't have enough to even live on, much less pay for long-term care. Um, I could buy private insurance. Private insurance costs about $2,700 a year on average. That's the average premium. Uh, it's easier if I pay in a little bit out of every paycheck uh, into a program like the Walk Cares Fund um, so that when I'm older, I have the money available to me. Roughly one in three older adults in America is economically insecure, according to the National Council on Aging. They struggle with the rising costs not only of health care, but also food and housing. Again, Ben Vegti of the WACARES Fund. Subsequent generations are going to be even less prepared to pay out of pocket for this. But we can all afford to pay a half a percent of our wages out of every paycheck so that money is there for us when we do need it down the road. It's a common sense solution. Um, you know, some things are done better individually. Some things are better done through a, a, syst- a systematic approach. You know, we don't all build, uh, when we drive to work every day, we don't build the road for ourselves to work. You know, I don't build my own road. I, I, I pay into a fund, you know, the government, and the government builds the roads for us. And I think we all benefit from that. And, you know, care infrastructure is also infrastructure. And something like Medicare or Social Security or long-term care in in the Walk Cares Fund is the type of problem that we we better address together than on our own. Healthcare coverage in America is notoriously complex. The WACARES Fund in Washington State and federal programs like Social Security and Medicare are contributory. You pay in throughout your lifetime, then receive benefits when eligible. There are also programs you don't individually contribute to, like Medicaid and SSI, but they often impose tight requirements. You can have pretty severe disabilities, but they may not rise to the level where you would qualify for Medicaid benefits in your state. Melissa Favreau is a senior fellow at the Urban Institute. So there's a lot of variability across states in Medicaid coverage and also for long-term services and supports benefits, both from the private sector and from the public sector, there are pretty stringent disability criteria. So a lot of people may be just below that threshold. Much of this involves Medicaid coverage for millions of Americans who have disabling conditions or chronic illnesses. These long-term services and supports are known as LTSS. We do know that there are tremendous disparities in terms of chances of needing LTSS 
by race and ethnicity. So for example, we know there are much higher prevalence rates of disabilities for blacks and Hispanics than for non-Hispanic whites. And this is reflected in the population of elders living with some degree of cognitive impairment. There's tremendous differences in prevalence of dementia across racial and ethnic groups and by education as well. Do we know why people of color have a higher incidence of disability? I think it's important to bear in mind when thinking about racial disparities of any type that just there are cumulative effects of racial discrimination over a lifetime. When we think about differences in access to services, differences in access to life opportunities, for example, there are tremendous differences, differences in stress. There are also huge disparities in income across groups, even when after you take into account education, for example, there are still huge disparities, both by race, by gender. And so those accumulate over a lifetime. And so when we're thinking about retirement preparedness and preparedness for long-term services and supports, any income or wealth difference is really just gets amplified and it compounds over time. And so I think it's really critical that when we think about differences for people of color or for women, that these are differences that accumulate over a lifetime. And Melissa Fevreau's research has found that timing of disability can also differ among populations. People with lower income or less education or people of color may experience disability earlier in life than folks with more advantages. People with less than a high school education are more likely to experience disability onset in their 50s, 60s, or 70s, and they're much more likely to die at those ages, whereas folks with more education, uh, say a graduate degree, um, they're more likely to experience disability onset much later in life, perhaps in their 80s or even their 90s. All of which brings us back to certain common sense measures recommended for families in any group. It boils down to one theme I heard repeatedly in these interviews. You can't assume that things are going to go well without a plan. Jacqueline Boyd in Chicago leads the CARE plan, which helps families to navigate through the maze of elder care. Aging is the only place in our adult lives and making adult decisions that we don't do our research, right? If I'm going to buy a house, I'm going to spend a lot of time preparing to buy that house. With aging, we look away from it and then we're unprepared. So staying at home is absolutely possible, but you got to have a plan and the people that love you and care about you need to know what it is so they can support you. So if I'm somebody who's aging and I want to stay at home and I have moderate means, um, I will spend the money that I need to spend on care and home. I may consider moving in with a son or daughter or a close friend to share costs and to be sure that there's somebody there with me if I need them. My family doesn't need to think they can fix everything that happens to me. I'm okay if I, you know, have a healthcare issue and it's my time to pass it home in comfort. But if we don't say that, then our kids or our powers of attorney feel like they are really, really doing wrong by us, by not, by not treating everything that comes up and by not taking us to the hospital, then to rehab, then back home. It's a cycle that we have to make some really strong decisions around and make very clear if we want to stay home. But it is absolutely possible. I think the first pressure is the emotional stress that we put ourselves under as caregivers. I don't care how much or how little someone's doing for their loved one. They never feel like it's enough. 
you know, they always feel like I should be doing more. I should, you know, I'm not doing a good enough job. And it is one of the hardest jobs in the world because you don't get any training. You know, I went through six months of training to be a CNA. There's a real skill to how to clean somebody up. So that was at the way, way beginning of my career. But I use it every single day because it trained me how to actually care for another person without injuring myself or injuring them. Jacqueline Boyd of The Care Plan. You're listening to Humankind. I'm David Freudberg. Studio recording by Antonio Oliart-Rose. Editorial assistance from Jack Klappish, Jake Vicky, Kathy Graham, and Ken Rogers. Consultants Jacqueline Boyd, Dr. Mary Jo Kreitzer, and Dr. Daniel Walk. Webmaster Brian K. Johnson. Special thanks to Steve Martin, Leah Lem, Mary Mathis, Robert Espinosa, Noel Flatt, David Cruz, and Tony Buck. Our program is presented by Human Media. To download an audio copy of this program and access other resources, please visit humanmedia.org. That's humanmedia.org. You can also access our other programs and send us an email from our website. Again, our web address is humanmedia.org. And you can subscribe to our free weekly podcast, Humankind on Public Radio. This segment, part of our project, Aging in Community, is Humankind Program number 287. The executive producer is David Freudberg. This is Humankind. To hear more episodes of Humankind, you can subscribe to our free podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast player. A new episode each week. The podcast title is Humankind on Public Radio. And if you enjoy this program, be sure to leave us a kind review at iTunes and Stitcher. If you want to support the program, please visit humanmedia.org. And at the top of the homepage, click on How You Can Help. Again, our web address is humanmedia.org. Thanks.